Surely a lot of you have seen the bumper sticker or one like it that says, a bad day fishing is better than a good day working. A bad day fishing is better than a good day working, and I know that some of you find that bumper sticker unintelligible because you can't imagine how anybody would spend any time fishing, especially if they weren't chewing tobacco anymore. But my guess is that you could probably fill in the blank of some activity or another that you would say a bad day of golfing is better than a good day working, a bad day of shopping is better than a good day of working, a bad day of football watching, of being at the beach, of being on the lake, something or another, a bad expression of any of it would be better than a good day of work. Now, why do people say that? Is it because they're dumb? Cynical? Or is it because work feels like a curse? Well, I'm going to suggest as we think about work today, as we run it through the grid of first God's original intention and then what has become of the environs in which we work and the kinds of people that we are, and then what Jesus intends to remake of our work, that work itself is not a curse, but it's a privilege that's conferred on everybody who has God's image. But it feels like a curse. Work itself is not a curse, though. It's a privilege that's been conferred on all who bear God's image. Before this Genesis chapter 3, as we've been discussing the last few weeks, you have this, this litany of God's inspection of all that He has architected of all that he's painted and breathed into life, of all that's magnificent about it. And you have this litany of God saying, with a sturdy, simple, durable word that even a child can understand, as he looks at everything that he's made, after he looks at all the work that he has done, and he says, good, this is good, this is good, this is good. There's a refrain that's meant to reverberate in your ears that God likes what he did with the place. It suits him. It makes him happy just the way you look out. If you're someone like me, who's not able to do anything useful in the world, and even after mowing the grass, and you look out and you're like, man, look at that yard that I just mowed. I did no other thing to it, but I mowed it, and it looks, you know, better kept now. Well, you look at things that you've done with satisfaction, and God looks with satisfaction, and as we said last week, this image that he made, these people, Adam and Eve, that he made, they received his highest, very good. They were the pinnacle, and they were the ones who were supposed to reflect him on the earth. They were supposed to be the embodiment of him on the earth. And we talked about how an image is not something that you construct by what you do or by what you wear or by what kind of music you listen to or what kind of friends you have. An image is not something you construct. It's something that's created. It's something that God has just given to you. It's conferred on you. 
Well, part of bearing the image, part of being God's royal ambassadors on this planet meant to sort of embody his benevolent rule everywhere, is that he gave them this task called work. And I think it's very important to see this, and I know I'm not covering any new ground for a lot of you, but before you get to the conspiracy of God's image bearers against him, which sort of obliterates all that God has said is good, that vandalizes the pristine neighborhood that he's put together, he creates this thing called work and says, I would like you to be dignified by having delegated to you the task of helping me run the world. See all this raw material, see all this resource, see all this lush and luxuriant and inviting. Make something of it. Mine out its potentialities. Care for it. Cause it to flourish. Come up with stuff. See, you're my image, and so I just made all this. I'm quite inventive, you see. You go out and be inventive too. Be creative in the way that you figure out how to provide for yourselves and how you build cities and how you do art and how you put together notes and instrumentation and how you handle problems that might emerge. This was the task they were given. Because you see, work is not a curse. Work's is gift. Work is a gift that God gave to His royal image bearers. Everybody who has breath, everybody who has the breath of life in them, has God's fingerprint on them, and is called to work, which is a gift. But we see, as Liza just read, and even her editorial flourish was perfect. Because the fact is, is that God says, I'm going to take this main thing about who you're made to be, and part of your punishment for allying against me, conspiring to overthrow my authority, is that everything now is going to be affected. And so this main thing about who you are, this work that you do of embodying God on the planet, well now, work's going to be the kind of thing that's going to cause you to have to take high blood pressure medicine. And your doggone computer's going to lock up and your hard drive's going to crash. And you're going to be a nervous wreck. You're never going to know whether you're doing a good job or not. And you're going to be watching financial news and you're going to be a nervous wreck, not knowing if you're going to have a roof over your head tomorrow, if you're going to lose your house. You're going to come up with bumper stickers that say a bad day Fishing is better than a good day working. Everything is going to be changed about this. So the curse is that the environs of work, the way that it plays itself out in an unpredictable world and in a world where we're the kind of people who are no longer keenly set on representing God, but are interested in self-image constructing And every man's for himself and every woman's for herself. And so work is going to be fraught with all sorts of disastrous things. Which means work is going to feel like a curse. Work is not a curse, but work has been cursed. Work is a privilege that's been conferred on everybody who bears the image of God. And if you 
can get in your head that this work that we have been given is God-given. It's God-designed. It's something that we do after the fashion of our God, then it starts to help you understand how to deal with the cursed aspects of it. In a way, I think what God wants us to do, and this is exactly what the Apostle's doing when he go to Colossians 3, and he considers that Jesus, who is this disguised God who comes in our flesh and He bears our sins and He does battle with the devil and now He has been exalted, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven and He rules over all things, subjecting all things. And it's not clear yet, though, what's under His subjection. It's not clear yet what's under His feet. But Paul says, if you recognize that this Jesus is Lord and that He's sort of remaking you in the image, which we talked about last week, and that He's ruling over everything then once again, your work has this dignity of being something that you can do for Him. It's invested with a new kind of importance. There's a new way of seeing what work is by saying, it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. Whatever you do, He says. Whatever you do. And then just to make sure you know, He says, whatever you do, which I think literally means whatever you do, Do it all, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says, there's this new way of seeing. In a way, a Christian is somebody who has bad eyesight. They can't see much of nothing clearly. They can't see up close, far side. Can't see out far, they're near side. And you've got to get some corrective lenses, progressive lenses, bifocals, that help you see up close better and out far better. And... Part of what Jesus has done, part of what the Apostle is urging upon even indentured servants and the masters for whom they work, is he's saying, don't just consider the conditions where you're working. You have to consider them. You have to consider the frustrations, the complexities, the actual issues, but you also have to have on these glasses that I'm affording you of Jesus doing this major extreme makeover home addition to the whole planet. He's renovating work. He's renovating people. He's renovating the earth. And you put these glasses on and it helps you to see out far. And you keep in mind, no matter what you're doing, no matter how menial the task, no matter how exasperating it is, no matter how thankless or how poorly paid or non-paid you are, you realize this is a God-given, God-designed task that I can do for my Savior who lives in me and for whom I am working. It's a God-given task. It's a God-designed task. And I keep that in mind. That's the far view. No matter what's happening around me, I see in a new way. It's the Lord Jesus you are serving, says Paul. Do you know why that's really important to see? Because work is so frustrating. There's so much uncertainty about it. There's such a often non-correlation between your input and the output, between the toil and the reward, that it can get very easy to begin to see your work as merely a means to an end. It's a way to get you to leisure, to your real life. Or it is only a way to get you money, which gets you a real life. Have you ever thought this way before? There was a band in the 80s that talked about everybody's working for the weekend. 
And that's what happens. You start to work for the weekend. You start to look forward only to your leisure. Your fake life is happening and all the hours that you're having to trade your time for money. And your real life is happening just in those short weekend times. That's why this cloud comes on Sunday nights sometimes. Well, if you start to realize, though, that my work is not part of my fake life, it's my real life. It's part of the life that God's actually redeeming, and so He's placed me where I am, even if I'm a servant to someone. Like a mom. If you are a mom, you are a servant to people. Sorry. You don't get paid. If you're a dad, you are too. But you know, when you think about it more broadly, everybody around us is a servant to someone in some way. And Paul's saying, you're all servants to the Lord Jesus. He resources you. He's given you tasks. He's given you the dignity of being his co-laborers on this planet, of helping him carry out his work. Keep it in mind. Keep it in mind. One woman wrote this, the fallacy in our modern world is that work is not the expression of man's creative energy, and that's a gender-inclusive man. It's written in the 40s. The fallacy is, not, is that work is not the expression of men and women's creative energy in the service of society, but only something that they do in order to obtain money and leisure. We quickly stop to think, hey, work, as pointed out in the garden, is the mimicking, the replicating of God's creative work in all the different environments that we find ourselves in, in education, in finance, in medicine, in law, in family life, in recreation. It's creatively working in these places, taking this little corner of the earth that God has placed you in and causing flourishing. And if you take away that big view of it, then work gets prostituted. And all that you can do is envision work as a means to get money. And those of you who have been working a while realize even if you're getting good money, it's a bad way to live. I can remember before I was such a sophisticated theologian as I am now, Okay, and I was working at a software company, which is why I'm doing this, before seminary, I can remember having a conversation with a guy with whom we did this all day. And I can remember him saying something like, yeah, I've got this plan. I figure he hated the job. That's important. I figure that uh, by the time I'm 55, I'll be able to retire. We were 25. And then it'll be awesome, all the things I'll get to do. And I remember, even though I didn't have a good theology of anything, I thought, that's a lot of years to do this in exchange for money, as if the next 30 years, that's a lot of keyboard strokes. That's a lot of headaches. That's a lot of just sort of waiting around for your real life to start. It's a waste of your life, really. It sat funny with me, and I realize now why it sat funny with me was because God intends for your real life to be right now. So if you're in elementary school, God's given you work there at the elementary school to learn to love the wonders of God's creation 
God created math, you know this, and words and science. It's all an exploration of all that he's made. And so the way that you respect your teacher and love each other and do your work if you're a student, it's what you've been tasked to do now. It's the Lord Jesus you're serving. Not Mrs. Johnson, finally. It's the Lord Jesus you're serving. And if you're in college or if you're out working for somebody and you're, you're underemployed, you think, you know good and well that $25,000 salary should really be quadrupled because of your magnificence. Even still, it's the Lord Jesus you are serving, says Paul. And this work is not a curse. It's a gift that's been given to you. Right where you are. To represent this Jesus. To work at it with all your heart. Whether in word or deed. So that people could see what it's like when God does administration. And child rearing. And coaching. And logistics. You're His representatives in the world. And if you can see that God has given this work to you, it injects it with a whole new importance so that the cursed parts of it don't seem like the final parts of it. It keeps you from prostituting it for money only. And I know you need money, and so does God. But work is God-given. It's not a curse. The other thing that happens is if you realize that work is God-given, It's designed by God. You're replicating God. And so work itself is not a curse, but a privilege that's conferred on you. You can start to see in all the kinds of work you're doing that you're actually helping God. He's dignified you to do what He's up to in the world. Have you heard the catechism? I'm not going to do it in Spanish accent like like I can. How I learned it. But in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all of His creatures and all their actions. La, 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 la. And it's an important comfort to Christians to realize that God's actively engaged in everything. We work because God works. We rest because God, on the seventh day, He rested after all the work that He had done. But in another respect, when you look throughout the Bible, one of the things about God is, He doesn't stop working. He doesn't nap. He doesn't need a Red Bull. When you go to sleep, He's up all night, tending to things. He's listening to prayers. He's taking care of oceans. He's listening to people talk about relational difficulties. He's tending to the economy. He is taking care of everything all night. He who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, we're told. It's supposed to be one of the great comforts in our lives that God is in control. And He controls it all wisely and in proportion. Well, realizing that is a comfort. It can keep you from overvaluing your work. One of the things about work is it's so godlike. God has given us this ability to be like Him in the world, work like He does, be creative like He is, be a maker like He is. But if you think of yourself as God in it, you'll become a a mess. And some people in their work do become a mess. That's why Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the workmen, they watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food, but he gives sleep to those he loves. And that's not a sermon about insomnia. It's a psalm that reminds us that we work in conjunction with God, not separated from God. We're carrying out our master's wishes in the world, whether in our home or in the office where we work. We're carrying out his bidding. We're representing his affairs. And so one of the checks to us of overvaluing our work and thinking, getting some kind of God complex is that we can't do anything good unless God's undergirding it. And so that keeps things in check. But what it also does is it dignifies us. When we start to realize, you know how God does his providence? You know how God governs all of his creatures and all of his actions? It's what's described in Psalm 104 when it talks about how God is very great, clothed with splendor and majesty. It says the trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. Birds make their nests in the home that he made. God tells Job, when he's kind of putting him in his place, have you ever given orders to the morning? Are you ever like a traffic cop to the tides? You ever tell the sun, it's time to get up, out of bed? You ever tell the moon, it's time to watch over the night? God governs everything all at once. But you know what's magnificent about being his image bearer and having this gift of work that's not a curse but the conditions are cursed is that he's actually said you know how i'm going to carry out a lot of my providence in the world you know how i'm going to carry out my care for the creation how i'm going to take care of birds and how i'm going to take care of oceans and how i'm going to take care of people who need houses to live in who need clothes to wear food to eat who need purposes i'm going to let you help me the corollary to god's providence is what Protestants call the doctrine of vocation, which is to say that God has called us to work in the world to carry out, in a lot of ways, His providence. Our work is how God helps meet the needs of the world. Have you thought about that before? Have you thought about the fact that all of your work, even if you don't think it's that valuable, can not only be seen as a service to Christ, but it's It's a service to the world for people that need things. And don't get tripped up thinking, well, I sell it. They have to buy it. Well, ordinarily, that's how it works. But does anybody here live in a house? Does anybody here live in an apartment? And in most cases, you didn't build it. Someone else built it, and you paid them. And it's a good thing because you're useless when it comes to building something. But you have a house because somebody else knew how to. And you drove here on streets today because there were people who made sure that there were roads. And this stage today, when 700 people were standing on it just now, didn't collapse because some of you trusty people made it apparently structurally sound. We'll see. Tim Keller says, Have you ever thought about just if you wanted to have a chair? If it was left up to you to have a chair, and you had to make the chair, you'd have to figure out where to get the wood, 
And if you needed a tool, you'd have to mine the ore to make the tool. It would take quite a while. What's ama amazing in this division of labor that we have and the fact that you guys are driven to do different kinds of things, compelled to do different kinds of things, is that all kinds of needs can be met by each of us playing our part. That's not a revolutionary concept, but it's an easy one to forget, especially if you are in business. And you think, well, that's not very spiritual. I just make money. I just push paper. I'm not a missionary. I don't do the Lord's work. And then, though, you pause for a second listening to the Apostle Paul. And when he's talking to the Thessalonians, for instance, when they're all geeked up about the possible imminent return of Jesus, and they're calling in sick, Jesus is coming back. I'm not going to work. Why would I go to work? Jesus is about to return and make all things new. And Paul, the Apostle, doesn't know to be any more spiritual than to say to them, here's what I want you to do. Get to work. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Work with your hands so that your daily work may win the respect of outsiders and so you won't be dependent on anybody. And you're like, come on! Is that the best you can do? I thought you were supposed to be spiritual, man! And you're saying... Lead a quiet life and get to work? Man, he don't know nothing. Or does he? See, he knows how you were made. You see I'm being pejorative when I'm mocking the Apostle Paul. He knows how we were made. He knows that work itself, even though it seems like it's not a curse, work itself is a gift that's been conferred on us as image bearers of God. And it's a way that God works out His providence in the world. It's a way that we get out of ourselves and provide useful services and useful goods to other people. It's a way that we're dignified and so He can say, get to work. Use your hands and make stuff. Take care of the things that need to be taken care of. And do it all as if you're doing it for the Lord Jesus. C.S. Lewis has said in one place or another, that God seems never to do anything that He can delegate without handing it off. Do you realize that God could instantly fix everything wrong in the world like that? Our economic woes, wars, environmental distress, political instability, He could fix it. But He's delegated it to you and me who are now working for the King. We better not work without the King. We ought to work in conjunction with Him, with the resources He provides, with the strength that He gives, which means that all our work must be accompanied with prayer, which are the two ways. Work and prayer. Do you realize this? These are the two ways that God lets us affect history. These are the two ways that God lets us help and carry out His providence. is by the work that we do and by the prayers that we offer. He lets us affect stuff. It's a tremendous honor that's been conferred on you. Close with this. 
Work is not a curse. It's a gift. It's a privilege that's been conferred on you who bear God's image. There was a meeting of the House of Representatives in Connecticut in 1780. And in these days, they weren't yet connected to EPB, so they had no power. And so they worked by natural light during the day. And as they were in this session, they also had no Paul Barris to tell them what it was going to be like. They didn't have any advance warning that an eclipse was coming. So suddenly, there was an eclipse they didn't know to expect, and everything went dark. And they started to freak out. Jesus is outside. It's the time of His return. They're wanting to say, let's, we, let's close up shop. Let's get out of here. Jesus is coming back. They didn't know what to do. And this one man said, speaking up in the midst of all the calamity of it, and said, we're all upset here by the darkness. And some of us are afraid. But the day of the Lord is either approaching or it is not. He had been trained in logic. The day of the Lord is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, well, then there's no cause for adjournment. We don't need to bust up. We'll just stay here. And he said, if the Lord is returning, though, I, for one, choose to be found doing my duty. I ask for the candles to be brought out. That's a pretty cool response. There they are in the darkness. People are freaking out. The Lord must have better intentions for us. And this man said, God's intention for me, He's made me a lawmaker. He's made me a legislator. So you know what I think I'm going to do when the Master comes? I'm going to be at work. I'm going to be doing the thing I've been called to do. Helping by saying, bring out the candles, tearing off an edge of the darkness, as Bono said. Wherever you are in your family, whether your work is paid or unpaid, and there is work that's unpaid, lots of it. If it's a father, a mother, a husband, a grandmother, a grandchild, an employee, an employer, it's the Lord Jesus that you are serving. And it's your gift to be His servant. To help Him benevolently rule and cause the world to flourish. Work's not a curse. It's a privilege that's conferred on everybody who bears this image. Amen.